0: Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Renee Mathis teaches writing, and she teaches writing teachers how to teach writing as a mentor in the Cersei Institute's Apprentice Program. Her approach to writing is classical, going all the way back to Aristotle's Canons of Rhetoric. I wanted to hear more about that, and particularly how Aristotle can help a 21st century writer break through the blocks that can keep a project from gaining momentum, and Renee obliged. Renee Mathis, thank you so much for being on the Habit podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: So you are a um, a teacher of writing and a mentor of writing teachers, also a Jeopardy! champion from what I understand. That is correct. (laughs) Tell, Tell me about that. We're going to start with the Jeopardy, and then we'll move on to uh, to more relevant matters.
1: Jeopardy's great. It, it always gives me something to talk to people about in parties. And my intro, introverted family members have confessed to me that they just tell my Jeopardy story because that gives them something to talk about as well. So <laughs> um, it was a fun process. I'm so glad I did it. Um, back in the day when Ken Jennings was winning all of his games, I started a renewed interest in the show. Yeah. and. Uh, There is a Jeopardy forum online, and he graciously offered to send anyone who wanted it an autographed picture. And so I asked him to please autograph this picture with the message, Dear Mrs. Mathis, tell your students that learning pays, which he did. (laughs) And so the more I started learning about the show, I thought, I want to do this. I really think it would be fun to do this. And what a lot of people don't know is that there's a really neat little Jeopardy community. (laughs) There may be more than one, but there's a community for everything. And I had wonderful, you know, developed friendships and encouragement from the others, you know, how to do the audition, um, how to study, lots of books to read. We played practice games together. And so I went through the audition process. I took the online test and then I auditioned in person where they test you to see if you, I guess, have a personality and can follow directions. <laughs> and then, then you wait. And um I studied a lot and then was called to show up in Los Angeles. So my husband and I flew out there. No, they do not pay your way out there. So you I've are heard. guaranteed. Yeah, you're guaranteed at least a thousand dollars if you get third place.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so um <clears throat> I was I guess you could say the studying paid off. I I am a one-day Jeopardy champion. Uh, Seven thousand two hundred and one dollars. Okay. And that was pretty fun. And uh, the next day I didn't do so well. I came in third place and that was the end of that. <laughs> you know, once a Jeopardy champion, always a jeopardy champion.
0: There so you go. Uh like, you're like a, a New York Times bestselling author. You know, if if you're just on there for five minutes, you get to say that from from then on. So you're talking. This was relatively recently that you were uh, on Jeopardy.
1: It aired in 2008. Okay, and the whole process was about three years from the time I auditioned till the show aired till I got the money. Um, it was a while. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's funny. Um, okay. Well, but we're not here to talk about Jeopardy. We're here to talk about writing and the teaching of writing. Um, so you've you, you've taught writing for something like 20 years um, to to younger students and also to adults um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier you you mentor teachers through the Circe Institute's program let's let, I guess let's start with the idea of mentoring uh, teachers One thing you had mentioned to me at one point was that you're you're interested in helping in encouraging teachers to teach in such a way that, that it nurtures and builds the gifts of students you know, it doesn't make them feel beaten down but rather, um makes them enjoy writing. Can you tell me more about that? How do you do that?
1: Sure. So um well as part of the Cersei the Institute's um, apprenticeship program, that you know anyone could do this really. <clears throat> we meet together in a community, in a group, we read together and, and my apprentice teachers are writing. And so they're actually working through the same curriculum that they're using with their students. Mm-hmm. And so I help teach them as they're learning this curriculum, but then they are in turn teaching that curriculum to someone else. And so they're learning how to teach, how to present a lesson, they're learning how to assess, but they're also being assessed by me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're also learning the importance of just relationships and good conversations that develop and arise as we get to know one another better. And so it's a three-year program because we spend time with one another. And I think what really appealed to me about this in the beginning was um, I I grew as a teacher because there were other teachers who mentored me and came alongside me and said, yes, you can do this. They gave me confidence and they equipped me with specific skills to, to then use in my own teaching. And so I just love being able to do that with others.
0: Um, you mentioned conversation. Uh, what's the connection between, what, what do you think of as the relationship between being able to have a conversation and being able to write?
1: Wow, well, that's a good question. Um, so we talk a lot about um, rhetoric and the art of rhetoric and what that means. And I like the definition that rhetoric is pursuing truth in a community, mm-hmm. because if I want to persuade you there, there needs to be another person on the other side of that. I can't just be talking to myself. Yeah. And if I'm going to persuade you of something, I need to be able to think through that issue clearly and carefully, which means I also need to learn how to listen to you. Yeah. And we need to listen to one another, and so that idea of a Socratic conversation, where unfortunately I think Socratic has gotten a bad name over the years, and you know we don't use it to mean I'm going to beat you up with how smart I am, and I'm going to trap you in some some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. We look at it as we're pursuing truth together, and that's going to require some conversation and some listening. And it may not happen overnight. It may not happen in the space of one conversation. It may take a while. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's one way to teach. When you when you have a student who's struggling somewhere, you stop and you, you talk to them, and you try to figure out where that disconnect yeah. is and what needs to change. But another way of teaching is what we call mimetic, which is based on imitation. And that, in a sense, is teaching like Christ taught which is a Christian classical educator, is what I want to do. So how did Christ teach? He had people that he was in relationship with, his close ones around him, that when he spoke to a crowd or he spoke to others, he used examples. And he didn't say, you know, words, 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 do this, do this, do this. He said, well, it's like a mustard seed, or it's like a lamb, or it's like a shepherd. He gave people types. And when we teach and we give our students types and examples, they have something to kind of hang that that little bit of information on and say, okay, I see this type one, and I see this type two, and maybe even a type three. And now I'm going to compare them. I'm going to see what they have in common. And as I start to see what they have in common, I start to learn what is essential in this lesson that I'm supposed to learn. And so as a teacher, I want to present types so that my students can understand the essential truth that i'm trying to get across to them
0: okay so your use of the word type i think you're using that in a, in a specific way that that may not be um broadly but it i think that idea might need some some unpacking here can you tell me what you, what you even mean by type maybe give some examples
1: sure so um if i am if i'm going to teach a lesson on oh gosh um similes for example mm-hmm. um, I could present some examples of similes. And instead of starting the lesson with, okay, kids, today we're going to learn about a simile, and this is what a simile is, and this is how to do it, I might start off by asking them, have you ever compared something? What do you look for when you compare two things? And we might begin the conversation about comparison. And then I might present two or three similes and say, what do you notice here? Let's compare these things together and see what they can find. And then we can talk about what do they have in common? Where are they different? And then we can talk about how comparison adds beauty to our writing. And, and now they're ready to learn the process of how to write a simile. Mm-hmm. Because they've seen it in action.
0: Uh-huh.
1: You can do that with a lot of different ideas. We, you know We can talk about justice. And we can talk about different places in our reading where we've read about justice. Maybe justice done well, justice not done well. Mm-hmm. And then we compare them. We try to see what is, what is the essential concept of justice? And we talk about it. Uh So sometimes sometimes you're comparing just to learn about an idea. Sometimes you're comparing something and then that builds itself into a skill that you then learn how to do, like adding a simile to your writing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You, you use the phrase rhetoric is pursuing truth in a, in a community. Um, and I love that idea. I mean, we we tend to think of rhetoric as, you know, one person talking to, you know, one person talking in such a way to manipulate what other people are thinking and, and try to move them in a particular direction. And, you know, and the pursuit of truth may or may not be a part of that. Right. I mean, in other words, I, I think of a lot of times when we think about rhetoric, it's it's more about um persuading people to to the way I think about things rather than let's together find out what's true beyond what either of us think about it. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah. There can be times, I think, when we can have a conversation about something that, you know, I may not understand well, you may not understand well, but as we talk about it together, we both come to a fuller, deeper understanding. There are other times I think rhetoric, when we talk about pursuing truth, um, I, I believe in the truth of the gospel, and I want you to know that truth. But I can't beat you up over the head with it, and I can't um, dishonor you as a human being as I'm trying to explain this truth to you. So we have to know how to do this in such a way that um, we can have those conversations and, you know, of course, leave space for the Lord and the Holy Spirit to work.
0: But it seems to me that even in the case of, you know, you mentioned the gospel, there that's a truth. That you didn't invent, by the way, you know, and 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 as you, and 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 the fact that it didn't originate with you also means that that you can still pursue with other people what the, you know, some things you didn't already understand about this truth that you didn't invent.
1: Definitely.
0: Um, but then the other question, the you know, the other thing that comes to mind is. Um, more or less by definition um, writing is one person I mean I, I don't have the luxury and unless I'm doing like instant messaging <laughs> that kind of writing um, I don't have the luxury of interacting with people in the, the whole point of writing is I'm gonna put these words down that can go out from here and I can you know have something it's not that much like a conversation when I put it out there. So, so tell me more about that. How does that, that truth, um, and I'm using rhetoric as I'm writing. Um, am I still pursuing truth in community when
1: I'm, when I'm doing that? I believe you are because even though writing is solitary and makes seem one sided, one thing I really want to get across to my students and they'll hear me say this a lot is that we write to love our neighbor and to serve our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And if you're in my high school class, you're not writing to get a grade from Mrs. Mathis. Mm-hmm. I want you to write to learn to love and serve your neighbor. I want to come alongside you as, as you're learning to do that. So what can we do in our writing to love and serve our neighbor? So one thing we can do is we can learn to use language well so that we can communicate well. Um, yeah. And that might mean effort. I I'm, love you enough to use a comma, in the right place and to spell the word correctly, you can understand what I want to say. We also talk about inviting our reader to join with us in, in reading what it is that we've offered them. So, a, a word we use um, as we write essays is the exordium. Exordium sounds like exhort, but it's really not. It, it really just means a beginning. Mm-hmm. And I like the term, I think of it as an invitation. I am welcoming you into this space. To, and hopefully you'll stay long enough to listen to what I have to say. So how can I connect with you at the beginning in such a way that you will want to come in and sit and listen? Um, there's a popular word in writing education that, that talks about the opening of your your paper or your story or whatever is being a hook. Uh-huh. And and I don't like that word. Because yeah. to me, I picture some poor little fish with a hook through his cheek being dragged out of a river, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's violent. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, let right readers <laughs> let's not let's not put them and cause them pain
0: yeah.
1: let's invite them in yeah so it's a lot of, i had a lot of fun teaching that lesson because i used to open up that lesson with um, asking the kids to tell me about what their front door looks like and, and what is it about your front door that invites people to come into your house and of course, the girls would tell me about the plants and the wreaths and the doormats and the, the beautiful, you know, curb appeal of their home. And, and the boys would say, I have a front door. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think there's a doorbell on there. But so yeah. I think we love our neighbor when we write by thinking of who it is that I'm writing to, who, who is going to be reading this. Um, how can I love and serve them? You know, if I'm trying to persuade them, how can I acknowledge that? they do have a voice in this argument and I want to acknowledge their side in case it's different from my side. Yeah, And I don't yeah. want to ignore that. So I might include a refutation that says, yes, there is another side of this argument and, and this is what the other side says. Let's engage that. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I think they're wrong and here's why, but yeah. I'm not ignored. It.
0: Yeah. It's so important to, in those kinds of refutations or those sorts of acknowledgements of, of the other side to, to, um, summarize those other arguments in such a way that an, an adherent of that argument would actually recognize it as their argument yes and I think we in in persuasive writing we tend to people aren't very good at that right you're, you're preaching to the choir you're trying to just you're trying to to solidify your base so to speak um, fire up the base instead of actually reach out to people who who you disagree with and and um, I've heard of, now I can't remember what the what the debating society is, or it's. A, I think it's one of the Ivy League schools, where that's that's one of their rules is you have to, um, you know, you if we're going to have this debate, before you make your point, you've got to summarize the other side's point in such a way that the other side says, yes, that is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. instead of arguing you know, with straw we men. Li- what would you say, Renee? We have to listen.
1: We have to listen carefully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing I I try to talk to students about um, with some success, you know, with let's say varying success is um, trying to convince them that they are entering into a conversation that's been going on a long time. Right. And so um, when you're writing your freshman English paper You've already mentioned. You know, you're, you're not just writing. the the The, the main message of this um, paper shouldn't be, "I'm trying to get uh, Ms. Mathis or Dr. Rogers to give me a certain grade." It's I'm participating in a conversation that's that's been going on already, and and so both giving them the dignity of saying you have something to say here, but also you know the the dignity of of saying. Um, uh you, you're accountable to this l- larger conversation and and uh, I thought about that when you said that rhetoric is pursuing truth in a community
1: that's really good because one thing i i try to emphasize and i love that the larger conversation so when we read homer or we read shakespeare we don't come to it you know as what, what what am I going to tell Homer after I read it? You know, it's like, what, what can Homer tell me and how can I submit to that? And how can I realize that if I don't like this or I don't understand it, it's not Homer's fault.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's my job to rise to the challenge of, of understanding and, and finding my place mm-hmm. in
0: this
1: conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Finding. So finding your place means both being humble, but also being confident that I, I actually do have something to bring to this conversation. Um, and it's a, so much of, now this, we're not talking about freshman English or or high school English at this point, but, but so much of academic writing becomes, I've got to find, figure out some way to some angle that I can say something nobody's ever said before, which leads to people saying ridiculous things, right? I mean, one, one way to be sure nobody's ever said something before is to say something ridiculous, (laughs) um,
1: but, but I appreciate it. you gave me that advice too. You said, you know, don't try to be brilliant, but in the process of your writing, maybe you will be able to show your teacher something that they hadn't seen before.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so as a teacher, I try to be on the lookout for that. I thought that was wonderful advice. Uh-huh. You know, when a student offers you something and and you say, "Wow, thank you. For that is a gift." Yeah. yeah that is that I, I now see this differently.
0: Yeah. It doesn't happen all that often necessarily, just because I mean, with young writers, they're, they're starting to, you know, they're just finding their way, but it really is a delight when, when a young writer does show you something that you'd never never noticed before. I mean, I say it doesn't happen that often. You, you may disagree. Maybe, maybe you do find that it happens a lot.
1: Probably more with adults. They have more life experience yeah. you know, to, to share and to draw from, but even young writers, you know, anytime they offer something I look at it as a gift yeah because sure they're, they're giving of themselves and and that's a scary thing you know they're they're giving of themselves to a teacher that's got a red pen and you know poor teachers <laughs> you know, we have our our, uh, our bad reputation that we just bleed red ink all over everything and we're just out there to play gotcha you're wrong yeah um, right which is a trip <laughs> so anytime that they give give me something i'm, I'm so appreciative of that
0: yeah yeah um I'm with you. And the, um, just to see a young writer be willing to just give an account of what they've seen, you know, it really is a, a valuable, a valuable thing. And um, um, all right. So let's talk about you You teach uh, the Lost Tools of Writing, which is a Circe Institute product. And, and y'all teach through the um, um, Aristotle's it's Aristotle's canons of rhetoric. I've got that right, Donna. Um, so tell me more about that, and and you're going to when you and I want to sort of zero in on invention. Once you sort of tell us what the what the three canons are,
1: sure. So we we look at um, the first canon of rhetoric is invention, which is coming up with something to say. And I like to explain that as don't think of it as invention, as in I've got to be as smart as Thomas Edison or Alexander Graham Bell and invent something new. Because mm-hmm. I, I thought that I'd probably quit before I started. Yeah. So I like to think of invention as inventory. And so when we before we write, we need to build an inventory that we can then draw from. Um, and everyone who's ever had a teenager or been a teenager knows when they come home from a hard day at school or practicing sports, the first thing they want to do is eat. And so mm-hmm. they go to the fridge and they open it up and they, they want to see a well-stocked fridge <laughs> that they can <laughs> grab and eat really quickly. So with writing, we need to stock those shelves, we need to build that that supply. And so we have ways of doing that in invention. And so the first part of the writing process is just gathering ideas. The next stage is the canon of arrangement, which is where we arrange our thoughts. And um, it can be, you know, in a very structured way, like an outline, that's what we're building toward, um, you know, to arrange our thoughts in an outline. But before we can even get to the outline, We have to do some other arranging and figure out which side am I going to take, um, what are my arguments going to be, and so forth. We put that together. And then the third canon that we deal with in writing is elocution, and that is saying it well. Um, that's where we get to have fun with figures of speech and style. But we also include things like grammar and usage, read, you know, the mm-hmm. spelling, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Now, Aristotle had two more canons, which were uh, memory and delivery, which have to do with speaking and, and oral presentations. So we, we drop those and we just worry about the bit. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So, what questions can I answer about invention? Well, I, I just.
0: It- I want to know, I want you to, I want to hear more about how you stock that, how you stock that refrigerator, you know, what, what, what yeah. you what you even mean? I mean, cause I, when I, when I speak to writers, whether they're, they're adults or, or younger folks, that's, that's a big place where people just, you quit before you start. because You don't quite know what to say. So we have that
1: page, that blank page. And so we start with learning to ask good questions. And so the first, the first question that we ask, and again, it's not you know this is not a law. It's not the gospel. It's just the way we happen to teach. Sure. I love teaching this way, so of course I'm excited about it. But um, the first question we might start with is for a persuasive essays: we pick out a character and we say, should he have done this thing, or should she have done this thing? It's, it's the basic judicial type of essay where you're judging a character on an action.
0: A, a so, fictional I, character. We're, you're talking about writing a, a, a story for and, a. Um, I mean, an essay in a literature class.
1: Right, right. So this is not literary analysis. It's it's learning how to start with a question and then inventing based on that question. Mm-hmm. But you could ask a question. If I was going to write a story or a, a short piece about you know, my house that's being built across the street, I could start with the question, what do I see when I look across the street? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you're going to start a story about a conversation with two people in a coffee shop and you want to write a fictional story. You could start by saying, What does the character in the chair do first, Mm -hmm. and then take it from there? So we start with a question, and then we use something called Aristotle's um, common topics. And I think I think there's like twenty of them or something. There's a lot. We use five, five is a doable number. And and these these common topics they are like magic and unlocking things, helping us to see things. So not only do I use this when I teach writing, I use this for Bible study lessons. I use it as I'm teaching how to read a book. Oh. Because These five common topics just, like I said, they're like keys that unlock things. So the first one is we look at comparison. How are things similar? How are they different? We look at definition. What kind of a thing is it? What are its parts? We look at um, circumstances. What's going on in the, the area around this particular issue? We look at relation, which is one way of saying cause and effect. Um, What happened before and what happened after. Did what happened before cause this particular thing? And did what happened after, was that a direct result of this particular thing? And then the last thing we look at is testimony, which is what do eyewitnesses have to say about this particular thing? And that can be eyewitnesses in the story. And then you can also look at the old expert witness. What would someone outside the story have to say about this particular idea? Yeah. So let's say I'm, I'm doing a Bible study and I'm looking at, um, you know, Jesus uh, parable of the good Samaritan and I want to unpack the good Samaritan. Well, um, how is this story like his other parables? How is it different? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was going on? What are the circumstances around the good Samaritan's problems? What's the definition of a Samaritan? What's the definition of a priest? Um, what happened before the Good Samaritan was was hurt and helped and what happened afterwards as a result? What do the witnesses in the story have to say? What would the innkeepers say? What did Jesus say about it? Mm-hmm. And and by asking those questions, I'm you know, I'm off and running and I can start making lists and I can organize my list, and then I'm getting ready to move into arrangement.
0: So you just got a big pile of stuff there that you can then sift through it and, and think what's interesting to me, what feels like I can expand on, that sort of thing.
1: Sifting, yeah, like panning for gold. Sometimes you yeah. throw out a lot of junk to get yeah. to that little gold nugget at the bottom of the pan.
0: Yeah. So the point isn't to hit all five common topics in your finished product. It's to use these common topics as a way of coming up with where's what feels like the real action here. What can I add here?
1: Right, and, and some people, you know, they they invent. You might say by free writing. That's one technique some people use. Mm-hmm. They just write and write and write till they figure out what is it that I'm going to say, and then yeah. they start picking, choosing. You know, from well, the nuggets, right?
0: You know, it occurs to me, you're talking about writing essays, but but some of these would be very helpful in in story, you know, fictional uh, storytelling. Absolutely,
1: you know? because eventually we're going to get to the part in our essay where we're going to open our essay with a section called the narratio. That's, again, part of the classical rhetoric. And I'm going to tell you a little story mm-hmm. so that you'll understand the background of the, of the context of this issue. And and to do that, I need to learn how to tell the basic story. There needs to be characters. There needs to be a setting. There needs to be a little problem. And mm-hmm. so, by doing that, you know we're introducing the idea of story writing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you said Aristotle had had way more than five, possibly twenty topics. Um, and uh, do you know any of the other ones? I mean, I'm I'm curious. What? Yeah. <laughs> did it, it, I, I, I love the idea of the topics, and I'd never, I've, I learned this at some point, I completely forgot all this. This is really fun to, to think about it and the, the ways that it could open up new possibilities for framing, um, again, especially nonfiction and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I want to see the rest of that list. Uh, I bet it wouldn't be too hard to dig up.
1: I will see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, So so the idea is just to get a big pile of stuff, which and then the arrangement step is to to decide what's in and what's out, and that kind of stuff.
1: Correct. And and we're we're big believers. I I am personally also a big believer in structure at this point. Um, So Mm -hmm. the essay will follow a particular form. There will be these pieces in this order. But um, I think that's good for beginning writers in, in two ways the beginning writer that really struggles and doesn't know what to do, you're giving them this gift of saying, you don't have to invent this. You don't have to worry about this. I'm going to tell you what to do. And in what order. And as you use these tools of thinking, it's going to get easier and easier. But mm-hmm. for now, you know, we're going to use this particular structure for the person who thinks i got to be me. i got to be creative. i just got to do whatever I want. Um, they need to be reined in a little bit yeah. and, and to understand that there is a discipline in writing. And there's a beauty if I could share a quote with you, I wrote this down. Um, Malcolm Geith was interviewed recently and he said, quote, and that's why I write formal poetry in the sense of using sonnets and villanelles, not only because I think their forms are beautiful, but I write it as an act of defiance against the pseudo liberty of our age, which thinks that it is only without constraint that you find expression. That's great. And I thought, yeah. I love Malcolm Guite. Thank you yeah. for you know speaking for the beauty of form, um, yeah. but but there is a plan for form and structure, and so that's what arrangement is all about. And you know I'm sure you probably told your students this too. When you, when you know the rules, you can break them, but yeah. first you have to know the rule.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Picasso was a was a was really good at just regular drawing when he wanted to be. He just you know he he. Chose to do something else, but he definitely had had nailed down those the skills of of the artist. So, Renee, are you familiar with the the uh, writing book? They say I say.
1: Yes, um, I found it very helpful in providing specific structure to follow yeah. so for when you get where do I go in this paragraph? Yeah, um, it's great for college students especially, or someone right. writing a research paper who needs to know how to integrate quotes from the other side.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it feels in, in some ways, you know, it's a it's approach feels um, very different from what you're from what you're describing in terms of, you know, you're going all the way back to to Aristotle and using that that classical language. But um, but I, I I love the the formula that they say, I say presents. It says, you know, here are some ways to at the sentence level to, to structure sentences Um In such a way that you are participating in the way people just the way people argue. And so, you know, it it feels so when you first read, it it feels so formulaic and so um, so uh, limiting. But then you start looking at those formulas and and you I don't care what you're reading, whether it's, you know, the 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 New York Times op eds or or I don't care what you people are. People use these formulas in their, I mean, at the sentence level. And we're just putting different words into the formula, you know,
1: the book is valuable because they give types, right? They give you types of this is what it looks like when you Mm -hmm. use this particular kind of paragraph. And as a reader and writer, I can look at that and say, okay, now I see what they're trying to do. I see what they're asking of me and then I can play with it. Yeah. The power of good examples.
0: Yeah. I think actually that, that book may be, may be the book that helped me understand this way of talking about inviting a, a Young writer into a conversation that that's already been going on. Um, well, good. I'm glad to know that you like that book because it it's um, it. I didn't know how classical educators felt about felt about they say I say, but uh, but I'm I, all I, about a good
1: resource. <laughs> what you say? I'm all about a
0: good resource. That's right, it's, and it's it is a good resource. Um, all right, and um. I feel like I spent, like in my teaching, uh, whether that's my my um, you know Thursday night monthly webinars or what we do in the habit or whatever. Um, I spend a, a whole lot of time on the canon of elocution and uh, you know the the different uh, ways of of being more eloquent. Um, but i want i you're inspiring me to spend a little more time thinking and teaching about invention and arrangement. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Well, about time for us to wrap up. I always end these conversations with the question, who are the writers who make you want to write? So there's your question, Renee, who are the writers? I
1: think that's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, so the first one that comes to mind is Rick Bragg because he writes beautiful stories. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I'm a Southerner, I'm a native Texan, and now I'm in Louisiana, uh, a family in Tennessee. And he just, I love the way he talks about the South and, and food. And I mean, I don't know what a grouper is. I don't think I've ever written one, but he wrote, or eaten one, but he wrote this beautiful essay about a grouper sandwich
0: Um,
1: and, and and dogs. He writes about dogs and just, he just makes me want to tell my family stories. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't if anyone listening has not ever read Rick Bragg, you need to hear Rick Bragg. You need to hear him read his stories. And he's great on audiobooks.
0: I've never heard him on audiobook. I've only I love his books and his is he still write for the sub for Southern Living?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think so. He's got um, a, a new one out and he um collection of his past columns. But yeah, once you hear his voice, then you'll hear his voice every time you pick up the
0: page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love Rick Bragg too.
1: And uh, I think another one, and I know he's been mentioned so so many times, but um, I guess it's just because this is where I am right now in my life. But that's Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. because for me, he provokes good questions. Um, he he um, has a collection of poems called uh, Small Porch, and and one of his poems starts out, "What was here that you wanted to change?" <laughs> As someone who's recently relocated and undergoing a lot of life transition. I have just been chewing on that question. What was here that you wanted to change? What are we going to change by building this house and, and moving here? And and he gives me, I feel like he gives me the language to understand the country. You know, I'm, I'm a city girl. I, I don't, haven't spent a lot of time out in nature, but now here I am. And I'm like, what do I do with this? How do I think about it? And I read his books and I start thinking, yeah, okay. I may not agree with every single thing he says, but but I love the way he, he just, talks about about nature and and where we are and plus the fact that one time I met him at a conference he spoke at a Cersei conference and and just to hear him read a story in person and to watch him sit there and sign every single book that was brought to him very patiently and then get his picture taken with the group of people I was with you know (laughs) so to me Wendell Berry is a very kind man who wrote books and now I want to read them because I met him (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah uh, he's he's a treasure for sure. Well, Renee Mathis, thank you so much for being here. You have given me some some things to think about about the way I teach writing. And I, um, I, will, I will ponder these things in my heart.
1: Thank you. It has been a joy to be with you. Take care.
0: The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout-out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song, Too Good, as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.